Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday the 17th, 2012, and this is episode 1056 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we're going to do an interesting show today. I'm going to do a show basically on, well, the basics from... Zero to basic preparation, fast, simple, low cost, not cheap. I'll tell you why in just a bit. This is going to be a great episode to share with people that you're trying to get on board with prepping. This is going to be a great episode if you're at a point now where you're going, I just don't know what to do next. This is going to be a great episode if you've been prepping your entire life and you're thinking, I got everything taken care of to help you determine whether you really do have everything taken care of. You might actually listen to this show and go, I've done everything this guy suggested to do today. But by going through the process of evaluating that, that is basic preparation, but I want to be more than basic, and it's shown me the holes. And I guarantee you it'll do this for you as well. You're going to talk to people probably for the rest of your life and eventually feel around to whether or not they're even open. And I think a lot of you, I hear, I hear this from more people than anything else. How do I tell my friend, my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my cousin, my dad, my father, my son, whatever about prepping without sounding like I'm crazy? This show will help you do that. If you are 100% bulletproof prepared, and I don't think any of us are, but even if you are, you may struggle with telling other people the how, the what, the why, and making them comfortable with it. That's what the show is going to do for you today. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Hey, I am like super stoked to have them as a sponsor because I've been reading them since I got out of the Army in the early 90s. And uh, I've read the work of people like John Silvera, Jackie, uh, and, and uh, Dave, David Duffy, uh, and, and for, I mean, just forever. I, I miss Jackie's last name, Jackie Clay, for those of you who know, she's a great writer, uh, really big on the homesteading stuff. Dave Duffy and John Silvera on, on a, you know, uh, Independence and Liberty and all the other great writers that are, are part of Backwoods Home. And having them part of the TSP family officially is really great. They also do a discount for those of you that are member support brigade members. If you're going to subscribe, uh, if you haven't already, make sure you check your uh, member support brigade back office before you join to get your discount. But check out Backwoods Home because they've been doing this stuff long before it was in vogue, uh, long before everybody and their mother was into preparedness, and they do it right. They do it simple, they do it basic, and they do it um, they do it high level at the same time. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. Next up today, um, Western Botanicals. You know, uh, I'm going to talk some about sanitation and health today, and one of the things I'm going to say is that as far as preserving your health in hard times, the best thing you can be doing is preserving your health in good times. And one of the best ways we can do that is to use gentle things that help our body build up its immune system and deal with things naturally. Western Botanicals can help you with that with some of the best herbal stuff that I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's a hard industry to find someone I would let on board as a sponsor. Everybody's going to cure cancer and all this other nonsense and stuff like that. You won't hear anything like that from Western Botanicals. Just the best quality herbals and herbal supplements that you can find anywhere with real people that really care about you that will answer the phone and answer your questions. They give all the member support brigade people a huge uh, uh, benefit as well. Their premium membership program is 50 bucks a year. You get it for free the first year and $25 a year after that if you want to keep it. That alone pays for your member support brigade. And everything you'll get from Western Botanicals is either organically grown or wild crafted. If it's been a while since you've been to their website, check them out at westernbotanicals.com today. They've uh, updated their website uh, within, I think, about the past four or five months, and it's really a much better easier to navigate website with just some incredible products and again everything either organically grown or wild crafted uh, next up remember to check out TSP gear we have some really cool stuff there for you guys tspgear.com especially all the new every citizen of sentinel stuff really uh, really popular so far with the audience also check out 13skills.com take the 13 and 13 challenge and either acquire or drastically improve 13 skills in 2013 get on board with us now and do that again 13skills.com last but not least consider joining the member support brigade you do that you get exclusive content available only to members and help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode I'm going to leave it at that today let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show um like I said at the beginning, the topic of today's show is from zero to basically preparedness, fast, simple, and low cost. 
Now, I have a marketing background. There are certain rules in marketing. If you can use a word that gets people's attention, use it. If you can remove a word, remove it. Make it as short and simple and as, as attention-drawing as possible. So a better marketing term for this would have been from zero to basic preparation, fast, simple, and cheap. Lose the low cost, replace it with cheap, go to one word, and cheap gets people's attention in today's age where everybody's trying to save money. But it doesn't work here. And the reason it doesn't work here is because we're going to talk today about how you can improve the chances of safety and survival. Basically, your life, the life of those you care about, and the security of your possessions today. And when one is focused on things that are that important, one does not focus on being cheap. Efficient? Yes. Okay? Basic and simple, and let's cover all the basics before we get extravagant? Yes. Budget-wise, low-cost, and doing what works with maximum effect for minimum investment? Yes. Cheap? No. Okay? You would not trust your life to a cheap parachute. So you should not trust the life that you've built the life that you've built for your family, your home, the security of those things, and the fact that you guys are going to be able to take care of each other in the future with anything that's cheap. We're talking about building multiple parachutes here, and if you had a hundred parachutes and you're going to jump one a day for the rest of you know for the next hundred days, you're going to take one, go up in a plane and jump it, and then take another one the next day. How many of them would you want to be cheap parachutes, and how many of them would you want to be whatever the hell you needed to not die? And I think the answer is I'd like all of them to be whatever the hell I need to not die. So what I'm going to talk about today is very low cost to do as long as we spread it out over time and think about priorities. But it ain't cheap, okay, because cheap is bad. I'll leave it at that. My, one of my basic tenets is to always be frugal and never be cheap. I always use a garden hose to explain this with. If you go to the store, right now they're putting all the stuff in for spring even though everything's still freezing cold because... People that run stores are idiots. Okay, but they're putting bathing suits out and all the gardening stuff out already, including garden hoses. You can go buy a 50-foot garden hose for $9.95. If you do that next year, you will buy another 50-foot garden hose for $9.95. You may buy another 50-foot garden hose by August, and it may break at the time you most need it to do something with, so you don't buy a cheap garden hose. right? And it's one of those things that always ends up costing more to go cheap But that doesn't mean that you go out and buy the most expensive thing that you can find. You find the highest quality thing that you can afford in your given set of circumstances, and you buy that, and that's going to give you longevity. That's just the mindset I want you thinking about as we go forward today. But what I want you to understand is that everything that I teach, everything that I teach about preparedness comes down to only six things. And one of them kind of gets added in, on top of what you would learn in any wilderness survival course. So I'm not talking about wilderness survival. I'm talking about being able to handle a, a two-week-long blackout. I'm talking about being able to deal with something like a, an economic collapse that costs you and your wife or you and your husband their jobs. Even if it's not the end of the world as we know it, it is really, really bad. It's a lot worse than 2008, 2009. And if you don't think that can happen, it already has. We'll talk about that little jewel toward the end of today's show. I'm talking about if there ever is a major, uh, highly lethal, highly contagious flu outbreak. Not the, the newest, you know, nonsense that our politicians and every health official wants to tell us to wash your hands and sneeze in your sleeve over the latest flu that's just the same crap over and over again, but we actually get hit with one that's severe. Something akin to the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919 when 500,000 people in America died and over 50 million people died worldwide. If it can happen once, it can ha I'm talking about these types of things. So it's not wilderness survival, but everything that I'm going to teach you, save one, and even that one gets taught by some enlightened instructors, goes back to wilderness survival because we're human beings. And as human beings, we all do certain things the same way. There's a lot of things we might be different about, our politics, our ideas, our religion, uh, the way we look, how tall we are, what kind of physical condition we're in. There's a million ways we're different, but there's certain ways that we're all the same. And one is we all have to put food in our bodies. So as part of a wilderness survival course, I would teach you how to feed yourself. It only makes sense. You need food as fuel. And the more energy you have to put out, the more fuel you need to put in to stay in balance. 
Okay, And in time of stress, you might actually need more fuel, not less. Even if it's not available, you got to figure out how to make it work as best you can. We all need water. We need water more than we need food. You can go for days without food. You ain't going for days without water without ending up dead, very sick, laying on the ground, quivering, and eventually dead. So water is, is a need of survival. Every human being has those two needs in common. We have to feed ourselves, and we have to provide ourselves with clean, fresh water, or we're dead. Plain and simple, no way around it, we all have that in common. The next is shelter. There is a, a only so long that we can deal with things like cold and heat without shelter before we end up dead. Even that it ends up being some way to block the wind with a shelter that we set up in the wilderness. But we need our shelters. We take shelter for granted because we most of us have a home or an apartment or a house or something like that. We need to not take it for granted because it can become damaged. We can be thrown out of it. We can have to leave due to an evacuation order. Um, and th different parts of it can become compromised. We'll talk about shoring that up today. Uh, energy. Now, in wilderness survival, we're going to call energy fire. So in any good wilderness survival course, we're going to learn different methods of making friction fire, how to make a fire maybe using a 9-volt battery and a piece of steel wool. Your, your, your good instructors are not just going to say, okay, we're going to go out and learn how to make a bowl drill and a hand drill fire today because that might be, they're going to also teach you, you know what, this is, this is secondary. This is, this is me. If you're doing this, other than it's just because you like it, it's a hobby, you want to work on your skills, you want to test yourself, you want to learn the, if you're doing this because you have to, you've screwed up. Because you should have a sure method of making fire with you whenever you go into the wilderness. And you should have multiple methods. You know, whether it's flint and steel or a ferrocium rod or a Bic lighter and some surefire uh, and some different types of tinder, you should carry multiple ways that you know you can make fire without resorting to primitive techniques when you go into the wilderness. Because fire allows you to purify water, it allows you to cook food, it allows you to stay warm, it allows you to signal, it allows you to make tools. But in essence... When we're out without all of the things we take for granted every day, like our television sets and our air conditioners, what fire is is energy. So back in our homes, we need to think about the energy systems that run the things that we depend on and how many of them can we effectively keep running if the grid that provides our energy is down. And what's realistic and what's not realistic when it comes to things like solar panels. I just read an online ebook that I bought. It's a complete ripoff. Don't buy it. I knew it was a ripoff when I bought it. I want to see how bad it was. And it's this family preparedness thing with the things that are going to run out and you better buy it now or you're going to die. All that crap. You guys probably know what I'm talking about if you listen to uh, things like uh, AM radio and all where this is advertised. They said if, you, you know, if you're going to be cooking, you need backup methods. And if you don't have backup power, then you need something else. Sounds fine, right? Until they say, you know, the best backup power is solar. Okay, you're not going to run your stove on a solar panel. It's not going to happen. Right? So we need to be honest about what things can do. And then if we're trying to get basically prepared, and we think basically prepared means a $40,000 solar energy system that's still not going to do everything the grid does, then we're never going to get prepared. So when it comes to energy, we need to be realistic. I'll go into that deeper in a moment. We need to think about our security. Security is the survival need that is most taken for granted by people not only in day-to-day -day life, but even in places like the wilderness. Security is the survival need that we can get away with the most without paying attention to until something goes wrong. The reality is some people walk through their entire lives never concerned about their security, and they're just lucky people. They're just lucky people, and they live until they die. Right, And they live as to be an old person that's had a full life, that's basically like, I'm ready to cross over, I'm ready to go, and they've never thought about it a day in their lives, and they're damn lucky. Because let me tell you something about security. The reason it's so dangerous to ignore is the second you need it, it takes that long to be dead. It takes less than a fraction of a second to go from living, breathing, alive to dead. I think every person, as you grow up, should have pets in your life so you can understand the finality of death at a very young age. Or of injury, of injury that's irreversible, or of emotional scarring and injury. Because I'll tell you what, if somebody pushes their way into your home, men, and has their way with one of the women in your life, whether it's a daughter or a wife, you can talk all you want about. You'll see that you'll see to it that they end up dead or in prison for the rest of their lives or whatever. It won't take away what happened. It won't fix it. 
Okay? It won't fix it. So you need to be thinking about preemption, not revenge. And that's, that's how important security is. It takes that long without it. So we're going to talk about security a lot today. And the last one, sanitation and health. It's also highly overlooked. Um, the long-term prepper that thinks about, you know, the end of the world as we know it and all that generally gets that stuff squared away. But the person that gets, you know, the basics going on generally doesn't think about the fact, well, what if uh, we're locked down with the flu quarantine and everybody's sick? Maybe not even with the flu, but we get a bad cold or a flu that's not so virulent or even the actual flu, but we can't get to medical help or a bunch of other things that I'll leave out for now. Let me just say that we need to be thinking about our health and our sanitation. If the grid's down and you don't have water, but you have a bunch of water supplied, you might think, well, we're okay. Okay, there's something that humans do every day. At least most of us do. You're unhealthy if you're not doing it every day, and that's get rid of our waste. Well, when you can't just push the lever and make it go down the toilet, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to tell you that today as well. So those needs that we need to build, those six needs, food, water, shelter, energy, security, and sanitation and health, I qualify into a single need. And if we go down and build a checklist off of that, we get squared away really quick. And it starts to become really evident what we need to spend our time on and what we don't need to spend our time on. And even many things that we would like to do to be very, very prepared, we have no business doing some of them until these six needs have their basic requirements met. On to this, we have to accept that everybody is different, everybody's situation is different, and your concerns with natural disaster in South Florida would be very different from the concerns of somebody in Portland, Oregon. And that would be very different from the concerns from somebody in northern Canada, north-central Canada, right at the edge of the tundra, which would be very different from somebody at the plains of Texas, which would be very different from someone in Bangor, Maine which would be very different from somebody in New York City. How urban or rural is the environment? What are the primary threats that that represents? What are the availability of resources? How much are you already taking care of for yourself because you have to because you're that rural? Or how much are you dependent upon because it's easy to do because you're that urban? All of these things must be taken into consideration, and we all must sit down and think to ourselves a basic threat analysis. What are the biggest things that could happen that are specific to where I live. So if you live in South Florida, obviously uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding are, are high on the list. If you live in Central Texas, tornadoes, brush fires, right? And, and, and if you live more to East, East Central Texas, you know, basically a true forest fire. These are huge threats in these areas. Uh, but then we have a common, common, common threats, a flu pandemic. An economic collapse. These things are common no matter where you live, but the direct implications based on where you live and how you live every day are different. I can't give you those answers. You have to do this for yourself. You have to sit down and go, here's all the things that could go wrong. Here's how they would affect everybody, and here's how that specifically applies to my family based on how prepared we are, how prepared we're not, how we live day to day. How many times you go to the store? If you go to the store three or four times a week, Right? And you don't, and it's not just because you like it, but because you actually are picking up things you need. Your longevity ain't a week long. And you got some work to do. Hopefully you'll, you'll uncover some of that for yourself today. We also have to start asking ourselves a basic question because if we don't trick, see, a lot of what I'm going to tell you today is logistics, how to do things, but a lot is going to be how to think. And how you think is more important than what you have. Because here's the problem that happens. Most people will end up in a critical situation. Do I stay or do I go? Do I need to leave my home or do I need to stay put? And if you've never asked yourself in advance that question seriously and seriously considered not only, well, I'll never leave because that's just stupid. That's how you die. That's how you end up on the news on the rooftop going, somebody please help me now. Why isn't somebody here? That's how you end up very, very angry at the authorities who aren't helping you as fast as you would like when they told you over and over and over, mandatory evacuation, please leave. Okay? So the answer of I will, I will never leave is a dumb answer, and if it's your answer, it's wrong. And the reason I can, you know, I'll give you a lot of leeway in a lot of things, but the reason I can emphatically say that it's wrong is I'm here to teach you about how to survive. And there are situations that will happen at times that directly impact individuals who, if they choose to stay, will die. I hate to break the news to you. If you're dead, you failed the first rule. Wake up breathing tomorrow. Okay? Because you ain't going to wake up tomorrow. You're dead. 
Okay, And if you're dead, I don't care how much you feel like I'll take care of my family, I'll give my life for my family. If you don't stay alive, you can't take care of them, and no one cares about them as much as you do. So you have a duty to yourself and your family to stay alive. That means you have to seriously consider when do I go or when do I stay. In the preparedness world, we call this bugging in or bugging out. And you have to run multiple scenarios. And here's the answer, even though all the scenarios are different. Whatever gives you the greatest odds of survival is what you do. And you don't base that on what somebody else says. You base that on all the facts as you have them. And when in doubt, it's probably best to leave. Especially for acute situations. Things like a storm. If you leave and nothing happens, you can come back. You took a couple days off. I know some people get into a financial turmoil where they feel like they can't do it. A lot of people that were hit by Hurricane Sandy, okay, Sent their families away, but said, I gotta stay because I gotta work. And this, you know, it might not be what it is. And if it isn't, I'll lose my job and I can't afford that. And we'll all be out on the street anyway. So there's points where you have to decide what you're gonna do for yourself. But if there's any possibility, if your gut says to get out, get out. We'll talk about what to do so you can get out in a bit. Um, you also need to think about where would I go if I had to leave? Do you know how many people, when you say to them, well, you knew the storm was coming? You were told you had a mandatory evacuation order. Why didn't you leave? They go, I didn't know where to go. I had no place to go. Let me tell you something. If you start thinking right now, and you're open to lots of possibilities, and the reality that something could happen, you can figure out some place to go. And then if you ever have to make the decision, you won't get st stuck With the belief there is nowhere to go, so I have to stay here. I, another one is I couldn't go to a shelter. I couldn't go X, Y, or Z and take my dogs, my cats, my animals. And you better figure, you better figure out what you're going to do now while you have the time to consider it. If you do that and you get pushed to the point of I have to go, you'll know where to go. That is, that is actually the most important question you can ever answer for yourself at any time as it pertains to a mandatory evacuation order. Where would I go? If you do not have the answer to that, you need to get the answer to that before you do most of the other things I'm going to talk about today. And the nice news is that doesn't really have to cost you any money. You just have to have a plan. Okay. Um, you also need to ensure the ability to do business when main systems are down. So that means you need to have cash. You need to have things that are barterable items. I'll tell you what's very, very barterable when things are down. Water, comfort foods like candy and stuff like that, beer, gasoline, and knowledge. If you have the knowledge and the tools to get a tree out of your neighbor's driveway and they don't, it's worth something to them. I'm not suggesting that you go out as a parasite in a disaster and say, well, I'll fix this for you for X, Y, and Z. What I'm suggesting is there are times when you may need something, somebody else needs something, and it's a good idea to be able to exchange skills, knowledge. And it's also the case that many times there will be businesses that are open, but they only want cash. So all of those TV commercials you watch that say, you need to have silver and gold before your money becomes worthless. I am a big advocate of investing in silver and gold. My belief is that every American should be insuring their wealth with about 5% to 10% of their total net worth invested into silver and or gold and physical metal. But I'm also going to tell you, in the middle of a hurricane, it won't be worth diddly crap. Okay? Because people want to be able to exchange things rapidly, and money is what does that at the current time. So you need a balanced approach to that. So one of those big things is the ability to do business when systems are down. Too many people get into prepping and assume that when there's you know something catastrophic happens, there'll be no one anywhere. It'll be all Mad Max and Armageddon, and that's just not the way it generally works. Generally, there are people, there are resources, there are things, and you need to be able to tie into whatever is left for the best chance of not only survival, but comfort in that situation. And once we know those things and our six primary needs, we can just start to build a basic checklist of things that we need to do. We can start with food. Food is one of the easiest ones. It's one of the most pragmatic ones. It's one of the ones with the least impact on your life. And it's why I start my list with food. You are going to eat every day for the rest of your life. If you stop eating long enough, you will die. You might fast on occasion for one reason or another, but in general, you're going to eat. In fact, I often put it this way. There's been times 
Uh, in fact, the majority of the time that human beings have existed on planet Earth, there was no electricity. Uh, there was no modern use of fossil fuels, no oil, no gasoline in the way that we think of it. People use things like olive oil for lighting. Uh, in fact, long before we did that, there was a longer period of human history where uh, all lighting and heat and energy came from fire. There was a huge period of human history where we didn't even really understand fire yet. And somehow we survived. Um, there was, there's a much longer period of time that men have been without guns than men have been with guns. A gun is a relatively modern invention. Um, there was a much longer period of time that men had no understanding of the concept of using something like silver or gold as money uh, than the entire history of time where humans have used silver and gold as money. So people have existed without guns, people have existed without silver, people have existed without gasoline, but people have never existed without food. Not for very long anyway. Now, what I want to do is I want to actually save you from the biggest mistake that's made by people to get into preparedness when it comes to food storage, um, which is buying crap you'll never eat, never use, unless things go wrong, and unless things go so wrong that you have no other choice. That's the, that's the last thing that you want to do. What you want to start out with is, and this is the first thing I'm going to tell you to actually buy today if you don't already have one. I want you to get a notebook. This should cost you about 60 cents and a pen. You probably have one laying around. In that notebook, I want you to write everything that you use from your home to cook food, to make food, to prepare meals. Everything you pull out of the cupboard, everything you pull out of the refrigerator, etc. And I want you to start figuring out how often you use it. Do you use it once a week, five times a week, seven days a week? How often do you use it and how much do you use in a month? How much do you use in two months? How much do you use in three months? This will give you a running average. This is very easy to do. It sounds complicated because I'm using a big word like a running average, but it's not. When you look at something and you go, well, I use that twice a week. You know there's roughly four weeks in a month. You use it eight times a month. That means that in three months you use it 24 times. It's the most basic arithmetic that we could ever teach a student in second grade. You can do this. It's easy to do. It doesn't cost a lot of money. I want you to then, as you determine these items that are used with a lot of frequency... And for a lot of families, these will be things like spaghetti sauce and canned tomatoes and different soups and all types of things like that. I want you to, next to it, write down as you've determined the item and how often it's used over a three-month period or a one-month period both, what is its shelf life? How long does it last? Okay, And then you can take the shelf life and you can combine that with the usage and you can say if it lasts one year, okay, this is how simple this is, if it lasts one year and whatever the, the expiration date is, it lasts longer than that. Expiration dates are not hard fixed numbers. If you have a can of soup that says it's good until October 2013, it doesn't go from good to bad between October 31st and November 1st. It just doesn't. We all know that. But the, the date's a good indicator of kind of the, what the plan for the storage. But if we have an item that has a one-year shelf life that we use on average twice a month, then it makes complete and perfect sense for us to set a goal to have 24 of those items in our pantry at all times. Okay, And we can do this through something that's practiced all over the place, but the first place I ever heard the term, and I think it applies to not just cans, but it's called copy canning. So if I have a can of something like, I don't know, wolf chili, and I use wolf chili, and I use that a couple times a month, right? twice a month on average, I use it for making some kind of sauce or just as a side dish or you know, for, for making nachos or whatever it is. I use it twice a month, and I'm not going to pass any... Judgment on your nutritional requirements. As your nutritional uh, knowledge changes and what you're going to eat changes, you can evolve your plan to meet. But whatever you're eating today, this is where we need to start. So we go to the store and when an, we, we were going to buy one can of wolf chili. Buy two. Right? The next time you need to buy another can is when you use the first can. Buy two again. The next time you're going to do it, buy two again. And copy canning, I first heard the term in one of Ron Hood's uh, DVDs on urban survivalism, you know, and being prepared in the home. But I think this is a widely practiced technique, and Ron's probably not the guy that originated it, but it's where I heard it from, so I always try to throw back to him because he was a great friend, and we lost a great guy in the preparedness industry when Ron passed away last year. Um, but that's the basic step to take there. And then just take all the things that you use and try to take, based on your average usage, enough of them to last for their storage period. 
If something lasts two years, you can go out that far. Now, if you don't want to have 24 cans of something, you'd rather balance it off with something else. That's fine, but it's a great, easy way for the things that you use consistently. But before you buy anything, keep that notebook for two to three weeks or more. And keep, keep that notebook on your, your, your countertop permanently. Every time you try something new, put yes, no, put a star next to it. Start fi figuring out how it goes into your plan. Now, I'm trying to get you to 30 days of sustainability here. So why am I going to tell you to store a year's worth of something like wolf chili? If you eat it, okay? I'm not suggesting it as an item. I'm just using it as an example because a lot of people do. All right, I'm suggesting that. Because in your book, you'll have a lot of things like sirloin steak and chicken breast and things that, that don't store that long that you're using. So we want to get to 30 days, and we might have a mundane, repetitive menu, but at least it's things that the kids are familiar with, mom and dad like. Everybody eats all the time. So that year's worth of wolf chili now maybe get used over two weeks if we're in some sort of a grid-down situation. But it's there, isn't it? And if nothing goes wrong... We just have this rotation going on. Okay? We just have this rotation going on. Now, if you, I don't have a lot of room in my pantry. I don't have a lot of space in my cupboards. It's too much food. Fine. Get some Rubbermaid bins and just keep them numbered. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Keep an inventory of them. And when you buy new food, put it into your bin that's last in the rotation. Take your food that's first out of the rotation out. Put it into your cupboard. Put them under your bed. Put them in your closet. Put them in your garage. I don't care where you put them. Try to keep them cool and dark location. This is all food that doesn't need to have anything special done to it to make a store. Try to get at least to 30 days of your nutritional requirements for doing this. Um, don't overthink that. But you probably need more than you'll think to get to 30 full days because you'll be surprised at how much fresh ingredients you're relying on. Now we need to go from 30 to 60 days. As we go to 60 days, the easiest way to make this happen fast is to get cheap, long-term, storable items that are easily prepared. Pasta, beans, rice. Those are your cheapest ones that have a full nutritional complement to at least keep you alive and healthy. If you add to it things like pasta sauce and canned meats and stuff like that, it gets really easy to put another 30 days back. Now you've got two months. Let me tell you something. Despite all of the hysterics that you hear on the news and on the radio and everything about end of the world, doomsday preppers, all this nonsense, 60 days is going to get most people through 99% of what they'll ever see. I don't think it's good enough. I want to get you to 90 days. But I can get you to 30 days, eat what you store and store where you eat, rotational pantry, copy canning, keeping a food journal. I can get you to 60 days by bringing in some other things I'm going to talk about in a second. Uh, as far as what I just said, how to do it cheap and easy and smart. And I can get you to 90 days by saying, okay, now let's go out and let's pick out things in the long-term, 25-year, number 10 can, mountain house, providing pantry, freeze-dried, long-term storage food. And let's put another 30 days back of that. Then we'll start actually even using the long-term storage food. Things like making meals in jars and things like that that I won't get into today. Just understand that when you buy that long-term storage food, you can start to break it up and make little mini meals out of it, put it aside in either bags and repackage it and use it. Again, I can't go into that today, but that's as you get into a more advanced strategy, something that will start making that even that food rotate. But 90 days is, is, is good to go for most people. People like myself really recommend, especially if you have the space and resources, that eventually you build up enough of a stockpile to last a year. And I'll tell you how that is really beneficial in a lot of ways. In an acute disaster where you know you're going to have an opportunity to resupply, this is not the end of the world as we know it, a year's supply lets you actually help others. And holding your neighborhood together, not turning away family members. That's why I get people all the time, but my family won't listen and I don't know what to do if they show up. Feed them if you can. If you're going to get them out the other side, take care of them. That's your job. That's your responsibility. You are your brother's keeper. I don't care whether you like hearing that or not. Take care of your family. Take care of your friends. Take care of your community. Don't try to make their life completely devoid of any, any responsibility for doing it themselves. But definitely have a plan to do that. 90 days of reserves will a lot of times let you help some, but a year of reserves. But right now, if you're at zero, just, just think in those three blocks. 30 days, 
Eat what you store and store what you eat. So you're actually going to have food that will last in that storage rotation maybe a year or two with long-term storables in your regular usage. But if you have to bring them back on top of each other together, then you're going to go ahead and use them up quicker. So you're only going to get to, to 30 days of I can't go to the store, I can't leave the house, I can't do anything, but yet your convenience is huge. And you get the opportunity to do something like an opportunity buy. If you have 11 cans of something that you like to keep 12 of and it's not currently on sale, you can wait a week until it goes on sale or until you have a coupon or something like that. So it starts to create a convenience factor and an economic factor. Now, on the 60-day stuff, I have some advice. Everybody wants to go out and buy a giant sack, a 50-pound sack or two 50-pound sacks of pinto beans from Costco or Sam's Club, dump them in a five-gallon bucket, throw in some O2 absorbers, cap them up, set them aside, not worry about them, and then they're there. And they've never cooked a raw pinto bean in their life. They don't know about how, how long you have to soak them, how long you have to cook them, how much energy is required. So I like to break that up a little bit more. Do some of your beans with simple canned beans. You dump them in a pot, you turn the heat on, you heat them up, you eat them, done. You can also get some freeze-dried beans. These take a lot less work. I'm sorry, dehydrated beans uh, you can get that have been cooked and then dehydrated from a place called Harmony House. You can get a couple big jugs of those as part of your bean storage. Then maybe, yes, yeah, store a big bulk amount of some Pintos for that long-term reliability. They'll last longer than you will, honestly. But then maybe consider something like lentils. Lentils have the same nutritional profile as a bean, but you can go from a hard lentil in a bag to fully cooked in 10 minutes. So that's that balances out the beans a bit. Pastas, buy what you like, store lots of it. It's cheap. It's high in carbohydrate. I don't like carb lots of carbohydrates in my diet day to day. I think it makes you fat. I think we've been lied to about protein and fat versus carbohydrates. I'm not going into a nutritional lesson today, but when it comes to extending that storage out to 60 days, it's cheap. It works. It'll keep you alive. And I'm not worried about my glycemic index on the 45th day of a quarantine. I'm worried about feeding myself and, and just being able to get by until I can get through whatever's going on. Okay. Now, once I get to that 60 days, one more thing I want to put in there, the rice. Again, this is a place where when people get into prepping, they go out, they buy the 50-pound sack of rice from Costco, they dump it in a bucket, they throw some O2 absorbers in, they cap it. Maybe they put it in Mylar, which is better. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially as you start trying to stretch out to six months in a year. You need to do some bulk stuff like that. It's easy, it's cheap, it's fast. But why not buy minute rice? See, minute rice takes a lot less energy and a lot less effort to cook, and it doesn't cost much more. It's still cheap. You're only looking for 30 days of supply here. Now, we're going to bring some other things into this, and it's up to you. Your food journal will help you figure out pancake mix, bisquick, and some things that maybe cost a bit more, and maybe some of the stuff that you did your copy canning with, you start to even bring in more so that you can get between your copy canning and your bulk items out to a 60-day storage window. Now, the next thing that we do is we start to look again at the long-term storables, uh, you know, uh, providing pantry, mountain house, thrive, which is made by a company called Shelf Reliance. Shelf like stuff you put things on. Your number 10 freeze dried cans that are sold to the preparedness industry. There's step three. Now, what I really suggest you do, and it's a little bit beyond the, today's lesson, is you also bring some fresh production into this. Hunting, fishing, gardening, foraging. I'll just say that and let that be what it is today, except that I think gardening is something just about anybody can do, and if you have some fresh vegetables you can bring into these storables, especially things like herbs, peppers, tomatoes, especially hot peppers, things that provide seasoning, it provides a lot more utility. And then you start to develop your own plan using your long-term storable foods. Okay, This is where you start to really say, now how much further am I going to go? How much am I going to do with bulk beans and rice and pasta? How much am I going to do with copy canning? How much? And you figure this out for yourself. But getting to that 90-day period, if you stage it in that way, is easy and affordable and can be done over a period of time. Don't even worry about buying the number 10 can of freeze-dried pork chops until you at least have your 30 days of copy canning taken care of. And that's all stuff you can do at the supermarket. It's all easy to do. Consider other things that can become part of that. White flour. 
I know wheat flour is better for us. I know it is. But white flour stores longer, and it's easy to work with, and people like the food that comes out of it. Learn how to make basic bread with white flour, basic tortillas and things like that, flatbreads, and anything else you can do with these things that are easy to store, that store a long time. Start learning these different food cooking techniques. And your food becomes a moot point until you get your other things taken care of. Don't worry about a year's worth of food if you can't provide your own shelter and energy and security. Right? Get that knocked out for 30 to 30 to 90 days and work on these things concurrently. The next thing I want to talk about today is water. There are a million ways to store water. There is a, a million of what I call solutions in search of a problem. There's water bricks and water barrels and things like that. And the reality is the cheapest, most efficient way that you can store water is if you drink two liter sodas, rinse your bottles out really, really good when you're done and let them dry out, then fill them up with water and put a cap on them. If, like me, you think that stuff is poison and you don't want to drink it, I guarantee you, you know somebody somewhere in your life that doesn't think like you and drink sodas out of two liter plastic bottles. Ask them to save bottles for you and save as much water as you can reasonably allocate the space for in two liter soda bottles. The reason you do this instead of milk jugs is they are much more reliable and much less likely to end up with a hole in them and much less likely to let the, the water become off in taste. Once you have your stack of two liter water bottles wherever you're putting them, and something you can do a lot of times is talk to your stores. And a lot of times they have the, these things, that, the, the, the plastic stuff that the two liter bottles sit in that allow you to stack them. Sometimes they'll give some stuff like that away when they're rotating it out. Or there's a little bit of cracking in them or something like that. And that makes it a lot more organized. But occasionally use that water. Water will not go bad. Don't put bleach in it. Okay? Don't put a bunch of chemicals in it. Don't try to freeze dry your water so you can add water to make it back to water. Don't stress on water. Clean water in a clean container will store longer than you will. It will not go bad. For water to go bad, there has to be something in it to let it go bad. What happens is water gets kind of stale and bland and just flat. So use it once in a while. And you can use it For things other than drinking, if you don't really need to drink that much water today, you can use it to water your plants, you can use it in your cooking, use it wherever. Just occasionally, you know, rotate your bottles out and just keep putting the, the back to the front until you keep that process going. Easy, simple, it is the best method to make sure you have some water on hand. If you don't have time for that, you just want some water right away and you went out and bought 20 gallons of water for less than a dollar a gallon from the store in milk jug style containers that the, the bottled water comes in that are all sealed up. I wouldn't fault you for it. I just tell you, be careful where you store it. We've had more than one jug like that rupture, even though it was just sitting there doing nothing. No, there's no, you know, the house, it's sitting in a house. Nothing's piled on top. It just breaks. It happens. It happens. The two liter soda bottles are designed to deal with soda. Soda is acidic. It's acidic. That means the plastic has to be a lot more stable and a lot more durable. And if you take a two liter soda bottle and you smack, fill it up with water and smack it a couple times on a countertop, it probably won't rupture. I mean, if you throw it up in the air and let it hit the concrete, it will. But you just smack it down with your hand a couple times, it ain't going to blow up on you. Try that with a milk jug. Try, I mean, I've dropped a milk jug off the bottom shelf of the refrigerator two feet to the ground and pfft, milk everywhere. Soda bottles don't do that. So it's durable and it's free. You're either using it or I guarantee you can come up with them. So there's your first stuff for storing water. The next thing I would say is acquire a reliable filter for your water. I recommend a Berkey. It's not cheap, but it's a hell of a lot better of a solution than something like a Brita or one of these little things that goes in your refrigerator. Those make your water taste good, but they're not really to the level where they make water that's not safe to drink safe to drink in many situations. A Berkey will do that. No matter what type of filter you have, there's certain things that can happen to water that you're not filtering it out. If water becomes radioactive... Right and certain chemicals, but when it comes to, to to water making people sick during a disaster, it's bacteria, protozoa, and things like that that generally do that. A will filter that out for you. Make sure whatever you buy will, and start using that filter every day in your everyday life. The way we use ours is we have a whole bunch of stainless steel water bottles that live in the refrigerator. Okay, when we want the water to drink or water to cook with, because we're taking all of the things we don't want in our water every day out of it. We take the bottle out of the refrigerator, okay? We take the bottle and open it up and either drink it or dump it into whatever we're going to put it into. We go to the tap. We fill the bottle up. 
We take the full bottle, we dump it into the top of the filter, and we fill the bottle with the Berkey filter. So we've basically filled the bottle twice instead of once here. That's that's all the extra effort. We put the lid on it, and it goes back in the refrigerator. I say you have to, if you're going to take, you have to give back. That's the way we look at that. Like you want to take water from the supply, you have to put it back. You got to give before you can take. And it's a great way to think about life in general. I've said it so much, my wife now goes Aah! every time I say it. But it does work, it is effective, and it is simple. It's something you can teach a five-year-old to do. Honey, when you take the water out of the refrigerator and drink it, that's fine. When you're done, fill it up, dump it in here, fill it back up, and put it away. And even a five-year-old can be accountable for that. If it'll work for a five-year-old, it can work for an adult. That means you can do it too. Uh, so a good, reliable filter. Also, start getting a plan about when to do things like when to fill your tubs. We started having the lights flicker during a snowstorm around Christmas time here, and we put the plugs in the tubs and filled the bathtubs up. Why? We're on a septic tank. Even without hooking the generator up to run the well to pump the water, if I have water in the tub that's water beyond my basic needs, and somebody goes to the bathroom, I can dump the water in the toilet, and away it goes down to the septic tank. That may not work for you based on your sewer system and your, you know, some of the sewer systems actually have electrical pumps to keep things running because they can't do everything with gravity. But it may work for at least a while, especially if you're the only one on the street that's been prepared to do that. If you have a swimming pool, you're in luck. You have an almost infinite supply of water, right? Now, it doesn't mean you can go out there and dip a cup in it and start drinking it. But for things like flushing toilets and basic sanitation, that water is there. You can also boil it and cook off the chlorine and other chemicals that you use in it. It's not my first choice, but if you get to it, at least it's there. But know when to fill the tubs. That's just basic situational awareness. That's a big part of this entire concept, basic situational awareness. So whenever you have a feeling that something's not quite right, all of those water bottles you usually store that you just empty, go, go fill them now. Anything that will hold water, fill it up. Uh, remember, if you have a 50-gallon water heater, you have 50 gallons of water in that water heater that can be taken out of the bottom. All right, I'm not going to go into exactly what you do for that today, but just know that that can be done. That water is there. Um, the next thing that you want to do is then consider large-scale catchment or water storage based on your space and budget. If I had my way, Every home in America would have at least a 500-gallon water tank hooked up to a rain catchment system, at least 500 gallons. I'd much rather see it be 1,000 to 1,500 gallons. And I would have that tank at least elevated a little bit off the ground so that I can use gravity to get the water out of the tank. I can put that water through my filter. I can use that water for sanitation. Um, I would set that up for everybody in America if I could with a wave of my hand. It would solve a lot of our problems, from drought-based watering to everything else that you can think of, to disasters and what have you. But here's the fundamental reality. I'm not going to tell you if you don't have a 1,000 gallons of water catchment, you're screwed because not everybody has the space, the money, and the ability to put that in. I'm telling you if you do, and you've gotten all these other basics of your water squared away, it's a real good idea to consider doing it. And the more the better. Water is life. It's the most important thing in the world. It's even more important than food. You can go a lot longer without food than you can water. Um, again, though, make sure you have a way to purify and filter your water. It's almost inevitable that you'll be able to find some water somewhere in just about any situation unless you live in the middle of the desert. And if you, this is where things start to have mitigating effects. If you live in the middle of the desert, you probably already have some methodology in place to ensure this anyway. And it's something we need to consider in our walks of life, that the more dependent we are, the more work we have to do to become prepared. The less dependent we are, a lot of the things you go, I already do that, I already do that, I have no choice but to do that. I grew up in a family like this. We gardened and we canned and dehydrated and put food back because we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, it was that simple. We didn't have a lot of money. The summer came once a year, the spring came once a year, and the early fall came once a year. We lived in Pennsylvania. It got really cold in the winter. That was the only time of the year you could really grow a lot of stuff. We had good soil. We had the space, so we made use of it while it was there, and we put it back. Today, we may call that a part of the prepping movement. This modern homesteading, urban homesteading, suburban homesteading methodology, canning, dehydrating, drying foods, flash freezing, all these things our grandparents just did. right? So you'll find that as you move away from cities... A lot of this stuff gets done, but a lot of it still falls through the cracks 
because now there's grid power to most places in the country. Whether you're in the, you know, whether you're out in a really rural setting or not, you can probably get internet and phone and electricity and, and water of some sort. And a lot of people even say, "Well, I'm on a well." Well, how's that well run? Does it run from a jelly bean field? Or do you need electricity to make that run? So that's where we move into kind of into energy next. And what I'm going to do, I'm looking at 49 minutes now, and I'm only into food and shelter. I still have energy, security, sanitation, and health, and a final thought thing to go. So I'm going to talk about shelter next. And then I'm going to wrap this up and make this part one of a two-part series. With uh, I've got a move going on for those that maybe somebody shared this with you and you're a new listener. So there's going to be some holes in my programming anyway. So this is a great idea uh, to break this into two episodes. It'll make my life easier getting it out. So this will become officially part one right now. But let's talk about shelter because I don't have to go into shelter for a long period of time because we're not in the wilderness building a shelter. I just need to get you thinking the right way about how critical your shelter is to you. I think the biggest problem that we have with shelter today is we go, you know what, even if I don't pay my, my bills, it's going to take them six months to throw me out in a, in a house with a foreclosure or more. And even an apartment in most states and most places is going to be two months. So when it comes to disaster planning, this whole shelter thing, walls and roof and everything, I got that covered. But then you ask the person, okay, so if you have a, a fire risk, or something breaks and you have gas leak, how do you shut the gas off to your house? I don't, I, I, I don't know. If you're having a contractor come in and do some work and they, and, you know, you think you know where the water lines are, but they don't and they hit your water line and you have thousands of gallons of water flooding out your house or your property, how do you shut your water off? And do you have a way to do that? I, 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 I don't know. Right? If your leak, your roof just started leaking right now, what would you do about it? How would you temporarily deal with the issue? I, I, I don't know, right? You know, if you started to smell smoke coming from your air conditioning unit, how would you shut it off? I, I, I don't know. Most people have no idea the systems that run their home and how to at least turn them on and off and how to do basic maintenance, even get by maintenance with them. So your first thing is to learn every system that's in your house, how it works, how to shut it off, how to turn it on, how to fix it, how to, you know, what's you, what you're capable of and what you need to bring somebody else in to do. And anything you're capable of, learn how to do it because you may have to. And have basic re repair materials that can keep your home intact. All right, so in the middle of a storm, if you go up on your roof and try to put a tarp up there while the rain's flying, while the hail's flying, while the wind's going, while the debris is rushing by, you're basically an idiot. Okay, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're an idiot. This is a time to put something in there to catch the water that's coming in and deal with it and what have you uh, as best you can. But when this, when it stops, it doesn't mean it's going to stop for good and it won't rain again until the repairman gets there. So having things like tarps and nails and the, and the knowledge and a ladder and, 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 and an ability to get up there and at least cover up a hole is a really great idea. Here's one people don't, don't just, it's so simple. If you have a roof leak and it's not like a major like water pouring, it's like a dripping leak. And you look up and your roof is getting, it's, it's starting to seep. And you see a wet spot growing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're getting little drips of water here and there. Put something underneath the, the, the spot to catch it. And get a nail, a small nail, or a small drill bit. And put a couple little holes in your roof. That'll let the water come out faster. Then you end up with a drip that you can just keep emptying a pan into your sink or whatever instead of having it weaken the entire roof and eventually cave in. Uh, we had a leak in our roof. Eventually we got somebody professionally to fix it. But that's exactly what we did. And I can tell you with as much water as came out of there, it would have been a much... It, it, you want If water is going to leak, you want it to go through. You don't want it to stay up there. You want it out of there as quickly as possible. So let it out. And, and you know sometimes you have to make a fairly... Large hole if it's a big leak to let that water through, but you're better off with the water coming through and being something you can deal with and get rid of than having it spread out through the entire roof surface. It's a much bigger problem. You're going to have much more issues with potential mold in your roof afterward, damage to insulation, damage to other systems. Get that water through. So having a just basic knowledge of, of what to do, basic handyman skills is something to work on. You know, see if you can take community uh, college classes um, or, uh, you know, even the continuing education ones that a lot of colleges do. Uh, just on basic stuff like this. You know, how does, how does your dishwasher work? 
I mean, most people just push the button. Well, that's not really. Where does how does he get its water? Because there might be a water line today. Let me give you an example of things that aren't really disasters, but can become disasters if you're not really aware of what's going on. <laughs> One day we came home, and there was water all over the kitchen floor, everywhere, deep water, a couple inches deep. And it just seemed to be getting worse. And I wasn't sure where it was from because it was so spread out. But eventually I figured it's coming from the laundry room. I go in the laundry room and I realize it's coming from the washing machine. So immediately I shut the water supply to the washing machine off. Most people would be able to figure this out, but not everybody. You, you, will your wife? Will your teenage daughter? Everybody needs to know this. Who knows who's going to come home? Here's what happened to us. The washing machine has a water line inside the washing machine. There's pressure on that. There's a valve that opens when the washing machine says, based on its cycle, I'd like some water now, please. And that valve opens and the water goes into the tank. But that line's there and it's got pressure on it all the time. A mouse had gotten into our house and was starving for water. His little mouse senses told him, inside this line there's water. I know, I'll chew into it. And he chewed this little water line open that sat there and ran for a couple hours while we were away. Now imagine if your teenage 14-year-old daughter comes home from school and she says there's water everywhere, even if you try, and you're trying to explain, but if you already know, hey, it could be the washing machine. Let's not even worry about if it's the washing machine. Let's just go shut that off. Same thing with water lines in the refrigerators. Let's just shut the, know where they are, let's just shut it all off. It's still coming. Okay, you take the wrench that's in the garage and you do what daddy said and you shut the main water off to the house. Yeah, you're going to have no water till I get home, but at least I... See, these are basic systems of the house. And we can need to shut these down or turn them back on during major disasters. Or we can need to do it just to prevent what's going to be a major disaster for us. Uh, on that note, make sure your home is fully insured. This gets said all the time, but when it comes to insurance, you get this homeowner's insurance and you think things like floods are covered, and generally speaking, you're not covered for flood unless you add flood insurance to your policy, and most lenders don't require you to do this unless you're in a known flood zone, and then you get a storm and you think you're covered, and the insurance company says, we're sorry, even though this was a, a, a thunderstorm or a hurricane or whatever, and you think it's wind damage, it's actually flood damage. It's like, well, the wind blew the water up. It wasn't flooded. It was blown in through the opening in the wall caused by the tree. No, it's still flood damages. Or this was not flood damage, this percentage of your damage, but this percentage was. If you don't want flood insurance, make sure you know that you don't have it and why you're not getting it. Because a lot of things that you think won't be, and talk to an experienced agent about this. You know, what exactly would be considered flood damage and what wouldn't be? You may decide you want to make that investment. Make sure your home is fully insured. Make sure you're aware of your insurance policies, what you do if something goes wrong, who you call first, how you document everything. Uh, we had a guy on the show, for those that didn't hear this interview a while ago, his house burned down. It didn't burn to the ground. It was still standing. There was still some stuff salvageable in his home. They called the insurance company. The guy came out. They got a contractor in right away to board up the windows and doors so that nobody would steal anything. And he was completely devastated. He lost so much, but his family was okay. The insurance company helped him out right away and got him into a hotel room that night. Everybody could go get a shower. Everybody had a few things they took with them. The firemen were wrapping things up. The contractors were there. They're boarding up his windows. Nothing to do now except go take a shower, get something to eat, and try to get some sleep and try to put this back together in the morning. Uh, a couple days later, as they get back into the home and take down some of the boarded up stuff, many of the things that were salvageable were gone. They were gone. The contractor who was hired to board up his home to provide security stole stuff they were never able to track down or prove. But you know who did it. You know who did it because obviously the, the, the boarding wasn't removed, so it had to happen before the boarding went up, and the only people that were there were the contractors on site. So what does that tell us? As bad as that situation would be, that you would stay put until that home is fully secured if there's anything left salvageable. How many of you knew that until I told you that, specifically those of you who didn't hear the first interview knew that? Would have even thought that way. That the people that are supposed to help you at the time you're most in need would victimize you. That's why I'm doing this show today. What you think can't happen to you has already happened to somebody else. 
And if it's happened before, it can happen again. And I, I want to say something to people that think, well, if worse comes to worse, we've got some camping gear, we'll go live in a tent. Don't ever plan on living in a tent without trying it first. Go live in a tent for a week and see what it's really like. A lot of people that have only done camping like on Saturdays, you go out Friday night, you set up your tent, you stay at a campsite, it's got all the facilities in the world, you stay there Friday, maybe Saturday, you come home Sunday morning, think, well, I could live like that. It's a lot different. It's a lot different when your entire life has been disrupted for some reason. If you are going to make my final contingency, we're living in a tent in the woods for a while or in, the, in Joe's backyard because he has no room for us in the home, go try it for a week while everything's super. Understand something. If you can't do something now while times are good, it's going to be not easier but much harder to do when times are bad. So with shelter, we have to have a couple more things we need to think about as we wrap up for part one today. The next thing is, if I have to leave my shelter, this is back to the concept of bugging out we talked about with logistics, where would I go? And what's going to be in place for me there? It's really a good idea for families that are open with each other about this stuff to maybe have a plan. Joe, if everything, if something ever goes wrong, you can come stay with, 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 with my wife and myself and our kids. And I would like to have that reciprocity extended. And the further away you live from each other, especially, you know, when it's not so far that you couldn't go to work anymore, but it's far enough that it was a localized event, one was probably spared, the better. I mean, look at Birmingham, Alabama with the tornado that cut that town in half. But if you lived a couple streets over, your house is basically untouched. Hopefully you have plans like this in place in advance. Just don't take your shelter for granted. You really need to not just assume, well, that's one I don't have to worry about. I have a house. And I'm not just talking about foreclosures and evictions and things like that. I'm talking about things that can damage it. And what would you do? How would you make it livable? You know, if you lost half your house, but it wasn't condemned, there was another, you know, how would you, how would you work this out? What would you do? Uh, I'm going to tell you another thing not to live in without trying Plan on living in without trying it first. There's a small RV. It's a great idea. It's better than a tent. But it ain't as good as a lot of people think it is. But I, I have seen people, and it's actually something I'd recommend that a lot of people consider, especially in heavily dense urban environments, do this. Put a, 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 some of their preparations into a small RV. You can get these things, you know, especially if you have a truck that can tow one of these already. You're not talking about a major investment there. You know, I've seen three, four, five thousand dollars. People trying to get rid of them because they're broke and they need some money. They're not the high end ones, okay? But they're sufficient for, you know, four or five or six people to at least sleep in and put some of their preps in that and then put it in storage. Because if it's in your backyard and you get hit by a tornado, your RV's toast. But, you know, if you're going to make that a plan, rent one and stay in one for a week. Go camping in it. See what it's really like. Because it's not as good as the commercials that sell them to you or the salesman on the lot makes you think. In fact, I would say for anybody planning on making RVs a part of your shelter plan, go rent one. Go rent one. Go take a vacation in one. Uh, there's an old joke uh, routine by, I think Ron White was the guy that came up with it. The guy that... Uh, Uh, you know, you know, you can't fix stupid, uh, and a lot of other things. He was part of the blue collar comedy tour with, uh, Jet Fo Jeff Foxworthy of, you know, you might be a redneck fame and, uh, Bill Ingvall, that guy, Ron White. And he said, RV stands for ruins vacations. And I know some people love the RV lifestyle, but know what you're getting into if you're going to do that. But, you know, just to recap the very basics of what we've covered today with food, water, and shelter. Food, build up a 30, then a 60, then a 90-day supply. Do your 30-day supply with the food that you eat every day. Keep a food journal. Make it go out to 60 by adding bulk items that you normally use, like pastas and flours and pancake mixes and lentils and rice and pasta sauces that, that add on to it and get you out to 60 days. Get to 90 days by using commercially designed food for long-term storage. And then begin to even learn how to use that. But you can put that off to a little bit later. Water store them in two liter soda bottles. Get a good filter. Know when to fill up your tubs. And consider large scale catchment and water storage based on your space and your budget. Shelter. Know all the systems that run your home. Have basic repair materials that can keep your home intact. Make sure your home's fully insured. Make sure to distribute your preps throughout your home. This is a big one I almost left out here. Um, it's kind of like... 
I put it here because it doesn't really fit anywhere else, but I've seen people that say, all my preps are in my basement. Great, what happens if your basement floods? So distribute your, your backup energy systems, your backup food, etc. Not all in one place. Think decentralized with it with your shelter. And, and again, don't plan on living in a tent or an RV or in the forest or anything like that. Uh, period, honestly. I mean, plan on having a solid structure to go to, whether it's a friend's house, whether it's a, a second home, uh, what we'd call a bug-out location, whether it's I'm going to a hotel. I mean, a solid walled structure is always better, but if you're going to make it a part of your plan at all, try it in peacetime before you suffer through it in war. I mean, it's the best way I can put it. And that's going to be part one of today's show. I'm going to come back, even though tomorrow's a Friday, I usually do a call-in show. I'm going to do part two of the show tomorrow. We're going to cover tomorrow dealing with energy, security, sanitation, and health, and some final thoughts about why this is important for every American, why this should be part of what we just teach people in general. I'll be back with that tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.